You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black. That is okay. This week on the podcast, we are recording for the second time. What do I mean by that? Well, I just recorded this podcast with my microphone backwards and the way the microphone is set up, it's not supposed to be backwards. And the sound quality was so bad when I was like editing as I recorded. I was like, oh, this is weird. So now you're going to get a more polished version of the same podcast, but that's one way we're recording twice. The other way is that we are doing the second part of a book, which is It Was All a Dream by Justin Tinsley. I picked up the book and put it next to the microphone like that makes any sense. But It Was All a Dream by Justin Tinsley, which has a fantastic cover, by the way. I didn't talk about the cover last week. It's Biggie in the Kooji sweater. Um, looks really, like, textured. I don't know how they do it, you know? Like, um, looks like it was, like, a... One of those where it's like a pencil drawing, but they do it with like a thousand, a billion little pencil marks. I, I don't know how to explain it, but great cover. And yeah, so we're reading chapters 8 through 15 this week, or we read chapters 8 through 15, and now we're going to talk about them. And so, yeah, to give a brief chronology, basically we start with Big trying to make a decision about the streets or hip-hop, and we end with Ready to Die being released, uh, Pac getting shot at the studio and yeah that's basically it so from you know it's just a couple of years or maybe a year or whatever so if you don't know about those events uh you can read the book or go to wikipedia uh fantastic website wikipedia and so yeah so so what i'll do is i'll just do like i did last week which I pointed out last week i'm not gonna like go through and talk about every event in big's life because you know for the most part you know what happened, right? And in the back of the book here, I read a quote this this week by, um, excuse me, I read a quote, I read the quote by Chio Hodari Coker, who was the author of a big book himself. He was saying like, oh, even though I wrote a big book, this book was still entertaining, but it's entertaining because, of, or interesting, it has insight because it gives context. So the events themselves, you know, so it's just the context. So, you know, for that, you can go read the book. What I'm going to do here is just kind of piggyback on ideas that were in the book that I would like to discuss a few broader ideas like two and then two to four observations and then we're done this is going to be a going to be a short one it's like I said I don't want to sit here and tell you like hey um I don't know if you know the the story of Biggie Smalls but he's from Brooklyn like I'm not going to do that you know you, you should know the story of Biggie Smalls you should know the story of Biggie Smalls all right so the first thing We'll start with just like a mundane observation, and that is that I kind of forgot about the extended Biggie audio universe. So for me, I mostly listen to Ready to Die and Life After Death, and I really just, you know, in the recent years, I've been listening to the ones that I really love. Like, so I got a story to tell, uh, Niggas Bleed, uh, the one with Jay-Z, I Love the Doe. So all of those off Life After Death, those are my favorites. And then Ready to Die, pretty much every track on Ready to Die, actually, except for like three. So, you know, that's mostly what I listen to. But then there's the extended big audio universe, you know, all these features and stuff that I just kind of forgot about. 
So Justin Tinsley talks about that in the lead up to Ready to Die. He was featured on Dolly My Baby by Supercat, which, you know, this is kind of a silly thing about me. But when I first heard that song years back, it was still like way later than when it came out, you know, because when it came out, I was like seven or eight or something. So when I first heard this song, the person who comes on before Biggie, whoever they are, they have this really distinctive voice. And I, but I thought it was Biggie for some reason. I was like, damn, Biggie's really, he's really doing a gimme the loot type, you know, voice switch up here. Like, wow. And then Biggie comes on and I was like, oh, right. You're, you're an idiot. So that one, uh, a bunch of niggas by Heavy D, which I had never heard before until two hours ago. Uh, kind of like Biggie's Live at the Barbecue, you know, for with the with, uh, Nas's Live at the Barbecue. It's kind of similar kind of vibe. And then the One Love remix with Mary J. Blige, uh, which I had heard. So two out of the three I'd heard. But the larger point is just that I kind of forgot about, like, all these little uh, bits and bobs, as they say, that are out there. And I, I do remember that Puff uh, P. Diddy, as he's now known, Diddy. But in the book, he's known as Puff still because the time. I do remember at the end of high school, there being a Puff released Bad Boy album with like, I think it's called like the Biggie Duets or whatever. And it's just all of these little scraps and stuff repurposed into an album. So it has been like 20 years since I've listened to that. So maybe I'll give that a try. But uh, anyway, the extended big audio universe, check it out. It's more than just two albums. Uh, One of which was a double album, but okay. So then... All right, so to my larger ideas talk, uh, the first idea is going to get at this concept of black schadenfreude. So how did I get there? So I want to start on page 162. I have wind chimes outside of my little man cave uh, shed thing here. So, you know, maybe you'll enjoy them and I'll leave them in. Or maybe the next time I record, I'll have to take down the wind chimes first. But okay, anyway. So uh, I've got page 162 up here. And what what uh, what Tinsley writes is, Watching Big Record was both sublime, and if you weren't prepared for just how vulgar he could be, cringeworthy. And the line in question here is, uh, that, that uh, made Moby blush was, Fuck the world, fuck my moms and my girl. Now, I have to say in the book it's written, fuck the world, my moms and my girl. But I swear to God it's fuck the world, fuck my moms and my girl. Anyway, fuck the world, fuck my moms and my girl. My life is played out like a jerry curl. I'm ready to die. Um, You know, this is 30 years later. So at this point, hip-hop can be as vulgar as it want to be. But even then, you know, at any point, hip-hop could have been as vulgar as it want to be because there's a certain level of vulgarity that's allowed in the black community and i i think i posit that this is related to uh, a concept that i've talked about before which is black nihilism which has some scholarship right so for black nihilism there's a book written by um i have it here devin r johnson that i want to get i'm going to try to get it and read it for the podcast and it's black nihilism, anti-black racism. And it's about the idea of, you know, essentially being in despair and feeling like um, nothing matters because of the situation that you're in. Now, that makes perfect sense. I think we can go give it that. And then piggybacking on that idea, um, as I was just Googling around for Black Schadenfreude, I came across from a, via a MSNBC article, I came across the work of Dr. Joseph L. White, 
who has seven psychological strengths of African Americans. Improvisation, resilience, da 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 But the sixth one is gallows humor. And he defines it as the ability to laugh and cry as you move through a storm, crying about the tragedy, and the ability to see some comedy in the midst of human dilemmas. Check out Langston Hughes and the character he used to write about that he called Jesse B. Simple. And, and yeah, this is really uh, true for a lot of different um, black cultural things. And, and there's a lot of gallows humor in a lot of things, but I'll try to point out a couple of specific ones so that it's more along the style of like, you know, the black version of gallows humor or what I'm trying to call black schadenfreude, which, you know, in that MSNBC article is defined as like black people being happy that like, uh, Trumpers got their comeuppance on September 6th or uh, January 6th because it was like, hey, look, you know, we told you that this guy was not good and now you're seeing it firsthand. So, but what I want it to be more related to is the concept of a very specific type of black, and I mean black as a people, humor that deals with very fucked up situations with um, humor and and that's that's uh, beyond just like the normal black humor, the normal gallows humor. So here would be a soft example, right? Chappelle show, uh, Tyrone Biggums, his entire character is obviously tragic. Now, a lot of characters are tragic, right? In a way, Tyrone Biggums could be your tramp. You know, he could be Charlie Champlin's tramp, except um, he he sucks dick for crack. You know, he makes jokes about that. So... There's that, right? And then just using this crackhead example and keep going with it, right? There's the Super Fiend song by Delta Funky Homo Sapien. And you can go listen to the ad for yourself, but it's just making fun of a crackhead. And then you have the more, so this is like, th- those are like transi- transitions, okay? I'm transitioning from the soft example, which is this Dave Chappelle example, to a little bit harder example, Super Fiend, but it's just like pure funny. And then into the hardest example, this would be in Menace to Society, where he he offers, uh, it's Old Dog, right? It's been a while since I've seen that movie. But he offers him a cheeseburger for some crack or whatever. And then he, and then he offers to suck his dick. And then uh, Old Dog just shoots him. And it's, it was, the scene was funny, like, up until he got shot. You know, and I guess, okay, so, you know, are there similar things? Of course, there's the Goodfellas, um, there's the spider scene where, you know, it's, it's much the same thing, except, no, I mean, it's, it's much the same thing, but I mean, that's, you know, that's part of the, like, the, um, it's part of why uh, a certain type of black person loves Gangster films. Um, also, just tons of people love gangster films. But so the, so there's that, you know. And then and then so if you take that and compare it to this Biggie lyric where he's like, fuck the world, fuck my mom's and my girl. My life is played out like a jerry curl. That's funny. His life's played out like a jerry curl is meant to be funny. But in the beginning of it, he's saying, fuck my mom. And I, I have to say, I used to have this friend named Quan in, in a middle school and high school. He's a black guy. And he would do this bit all the time where he'd be on this cell phone and then he'd be like, yeah, yeah, no, fuck you. No, fuck you too. All right, mom, love you. And then hang up. And it was always a joke because he wasn't actually telling his mom, fuck you. But it's a similar type thing. 
So I think that there's a level of vulgarity that you can get to uh, in hip hop, in the black hip hop community, in the black community, where you're, the shouting for it is that you're kind of like saying something horrible potentially about another person and delighting in both the idea of that about the other person being true and also the you also kind of delighting in the horror or the um gasps that you're eliciting from people and so you know just to throw one last example it's almost like that that uh game torture at the beginning of um the method man song uh torture torture motherfucker i fucking i fucking that that uh that skit it's maybe something like that so I think this is an interesting concept. It's obviously you're going to, like I just did with Goodfellas, you're going to run into the idea of like there's black humor all over the place. So you'd really have to like drill down into what is specific about gallows and black humor, uh, gallows humor and black humor and Schadenfreude specifically in the black community. But I would love to read some research on the idea is the point. So anyway, okay, so that was one larger idea that I had and then oh wait just to put a bow on that Tinsley uses the word cringeworthy earlier to describe like how the lyrics are and I feel like we need a black term for this we need a black term for cringeworthy because I don't think cringeworthy so it's the same thing as wanting you know to coin black schadenfreude we need a term for the feeling of hearing Biggie say fuck the world fuck my moms and my girl my life has played out like a Jerry curl or the idea of, you know, laughing at a crackhead like Tyrone Biggum's uh, sucking dick for crack, um, which, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't be funny. Um, although I'm having trouble not laughing as I'm saying it, cause I'm thinking about Dave Chappelle talking to Joe Rogan saying, I smoke rocks. Uh, it's enjoyable. Okay. So would love to come up with a term for cringeworthy. Um, that is specific to black people and the feeling a black person has listening to something that might be considered black schadenfreude. So those are my, um, uh, lexical wish lists. Um, okay. Linguistic wish lists. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, all right. So then the other idea that I had was about using, the modern parlance, and I, when I say modern parlance, from here on out, just know that I'm talking about black people. Okay? I'm not talking about white people. But so the, I want to segue into Tinsley's use of the modern parlance in this book. So on page 179, flipping pages, flipping pages. On page 179, he says... At that point, all Valetta saw was red. She wanted to wrangle her grown giant of a son by the neck, and her grown giant of a son wanted no smoke with his mother. So, so that's one example where we just have this, this term, you know, wanting smoke, which is wanting smoke, which the way I'm saying this is exactly why there's a problem with, uh, not a problem, but a maybe a dilemma with the way it's written. It's very hard to take the black language as it's spoken and translate it to prose, not the black experience that can be done. Tony Morrison, James Baldwin, etc. Everybody who we read on this podcast, etc., etc., etc. 
that can be done. But the black language, the living, breathing malleability of the black language, the West African griot tradition transplanted on the transatlantic slave ships, living, breathing language. That can be difficult. And it's not just here where Tinsley's choosing to translate his prose using this modern parlance. It's also when he's just reporting. So on page 207, he writes, The journalist Touré penned a scathing piece in the village voice, essentially calling Tupac a marvelous actor who treated the world as his stage and that his theatrics outweighed any creative work he'd ever done up to that point. The piece, in Shakur's, in Shakur's own words, gutted him and made him cry, quote, like a bitch, end quote. Now see, there's no way to say that out loud, in my opinion, or read it in your head and not say it like a jackass. Quote, like a bitch. <laughs> quote, unquote, like a bitch. There's just no way to say where you don't sound like, um the white character from Chappelle show, a lot of Chappelle show references today, but you know, like when they have the race draft and he's like, you can't hustle a hustler Tyrone. I'm the original hustler. Uh, that guy. They sound a lot like me. Oh, well, uh, but no, so there's, there's no way to, to do it. I, I don't think. And so I think it gets back to one of my other favorite, you know, things that I want to be somebody's research stream which is hip-hop as literature. Because I think that one of the difficulties of taking that prose and translating it is that, excuse me, taking that language and translating it to the page is that you're going to be compared alongside hip-hop, which is, you know, potentially, or I believe it to be, a much better mode of conveyance of the specific way that black people talk and uh, yeah okay whatever we're gonna have to get into the whole concept that not all black people talk alike but i'm talking about the the there's definitely you know african-american vernacular english and there's slang or whatever I, i'm just really mainly talking about like that slang pool you know the giant pool of slang and we all pull from it right uh wanting smoke is like a very you know, ubiquitous black slang term, right? I would say most uh, black people of a certain age know that term, right? And then you could get into ones that are smaller uh, black slang terms or regional black slang terms or just not, you know, not um, not well-known black slang terms, right? There's all of that. We don't have to get into that. But I'm just saying hip-hop might be the best way for that old oral tradition that we talk about a lot to stay alive and well. And it might just be damn near impossible to take the feeling of listening to a great black orator, be it a preacher, a community leader, a political figure, a hip hop artist, etc., and translate that to the page because there is so much rich tradition and history and ability and vibrancy oral black English. So, uh, you know, I just think it's an interesting idea. And, and as, as an example here, I've got this little 20 second snippet of a song by Conway the Machine and who's, you know, my favorite 
current rapper and one of the best writers going out there who I always say is he's doing literature. Uh, him and Big Ghost LTD have got uh, this song called Red Beams. And here's just 20 seconds of it in which the lyric, um, or the term uh, wanting smoke is also used. So you so you heard the you heard the the little snippet there, and maybe I'm uh, wrong, and reading it in a book is no different. But to me, it just comes alive much better when it's spoken. Is it just feels like uh, a spoken type thing and not a written type thing. And you know, there's another interesting part about this with um, with uh, like in 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 Chinese, which happens to be a, a language that I speak. There are lots of words that are written only. You know, you only see them in book, books, and you don't say them out loud or it sounds awkward. And I think with um, a lot of modern black slang, the only time it sounds okay written is when it's written on like social media, because on social media, you write how you talk most of the time. You know, you don't write like a book. So it's just interesting. Uh, it's just an interesting thing, I think. I think it's very hard to take oral black slang and turn it into prose and uh, Tinsley's, it's not like Tinsley's book is full of it or something. It's not, it's not like, you know, when you would read the source or double XL growing up or something and you'd be like, okay, they're writing in this, um, this style that's supposed to be raw. Slam Magazine had a lot of that too. I used to love Slam Magazine. And there would always be like an awkwardness to it, you know? And then you would find people who did well with it or could do a better job with it where they like... They didn't overdo it, you know. I thought Scoop Jackson was like a good example of being a very black writer with a very black voice and using a lot of black vernacularisms and not sounding like he was trying to, you know, be cool, be Mr. Be Mr. Black Writer, be the H-N-I-C, as it were. Uh, of black writers, but that's not what's happening here with Tinsley at all. It's just that there are a few phrases here or there thrown in. And then there's of course quotes, you have to have quotes and it always just kind of sounds interesting. And especially when you're reading like Tupac, who any verbal Tupac uh, interview that you listen to is going to leap off the screen or the, whatever you're listening on. Whereas reading it, you're like, yeah, this doesn't hit the same. You know, you know how Pac, how intense he was. So it's just kind of weird. So whatever. Uh, this is another thing that's probably true for other areas as well, right? It's not just black slang, but this podcast is about black people. No, but also, um, but also, you know, black slang is the slang. Uh, it's certainly the slang of the U.S. now because hip hop is the music of the U.S. and black people are still making, um, if not most of the hip-hop, most of the successful hip-hop artists are still black. So, you know, um, it might not be 100% a black phenomenon, but I think it's worth investigating like Black Schadenfreude. I think they're both interesting Ideas, of course, I think they're interesting ideas. I'm the one who's talking about them. But Okay, all right, so enough of that. Uh, and then so the last three things I have here are just pretty quick, just um, characters that, that I feel like uh, 
Tinsley has done a great job of developing, which is a weird thing to say, of course, because they're real people, which must be the weirdest part about writing a book like this. I, I think Justin Tinsley's probably around my age, so he grew up with these people, and to have grown up with a famous person and then have to capture them and then develop them as a character when you've known them the whole time. So, like, character development and nonfiction with characters who you saw you know it's not like he's writing about somebody from like the 1850s or it's like oh okay i didn't you know whatever just i don't know why it popped in my head but like nat turner if nat turner was a character you were writing in a book you could do whatever you want with nat turner even if you read accounts of him you didn't actually see him or whatever but tupac we we know who tupac is you know but still you you um you can uh you can still develop him into a character and I, 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 or capture his character or whatever. So anyway, I think Tinsley's done a really great job of that. And so he's captured like the frenetic kind of energy of Tupac. Um, I love hearing like a trash bag full of weed, like Tupac rolling up to a place with a trash bag full of weed. It's very descriptive and just a crazy amount of weed, but you know, it's not hard to imagine. And then I love, uh, this on page 192 flipping pages flipping pages he says uh talking about the three singles i get around keep your head up and etc there's another single um holler if you hear me he says all three singles represent different sides to shakur and for anyone paying attention it was evident that tupac shakur was far more than just a rapper there was this Malcolm X-like spirit to him that endeared him to black folks regardless of where he was from because he understood the struggle was not confined to one region. This is very true and it's very interesting because you get this with certain black people. Like Nipsey Hussle's another one. He's not as big as Tupac, but he's, you know, revered, respected, beloved in the black community. And part of it is that he was trying to do something to change his community. But part of it's also just this aura just this spirit what tinsley calls a malcolm x like spirit there's just something around him and you know i'm sure if you asked a black person of a certain age probably about 20 years older than me and up is tupac like malcolm x they're going to probably say no but you know uh we haven't had any malcolm x's since malcolm x and or we have his name is tupac you know it's definitely not uh you know Barry Obama's, uh, no offense to Obama, but uh, somebody like Tupac and that level of inspiration is, it's interesting to have in a person who is also flawed and Tinsley covers those flaws as well. So I just thought that was really good character development. And I really just like the Malcolm reference because it really does also get down to another thing I really love. Well, not love. I just think it's interesting is the duality of blackness where I think I've talked about this before, but you have Booker T Washington versus WB Du Bois um, at one point. And then of course, Malcolm and Martin at one point. And then we get uh, Tupac and Biggie, you know, and there always seems to be these warring factions. Now Malcolm and Martin weren't, you know, warring factions. Du Bois and, and Booker T were actually, you know, on opposite sides of the coin. Malcolm and Martin had some different, ideas so there you go and then and then Tupac and Biggie are not you know they're not arguing about a, an, any any kind of idea but there's I just like the idea of there being like a a dichotomy um you know or oh, another one is Pryor versus Cosby 
You know, so anyway, whatever. It's just, it doesn't mean that there's like two camps of blackness and you have to choose one. It just means that it's interesting when there's a character who's closely associated with another character. If you read about Pac, you have to read about Biggie. If you read about, you know, for those other ones, Martin and Malcolm, you don't have to read about them together, but like it would make sense to Richard Pryor and Cosby. You don't have to read about them together, especially, especially now with what's come out with Cosby, but you certainly could. And, um, and the same is true for Du Bois and Booker T. Du Bois had, did so much that you don't have to read about Booker T who also did so much, but it's interesting if you do. So just something that I like. Uh, okay. The, speeding up a little bit here, another character that's developed in the book, not even developed really, but just made me think of him as a character. So I, I wrote down Tupac as Malcolm, and then I wrote down Haitian Jack as Omar from The Wire. And I don't think that even needs explaining. I'm scared to talk about Haitian Jack. Like, I feel like it's the boogeyman or fucking um, Kaiser Sose or whatever. Like, I'm good, man. So he got deported, but you never know. I don't want to be, I might one day go to the DR. I don't want to run into Haitian Jack, and I can tell you right now that I don't want any smoke with Haitian Jack. So how about that? Because um, that, man, that, them, them stories, I'm good. I'm good. I am good. Mike Tyson warned Pac apparently about Haitian Jack. If Mike Tyson warns me about another human, I'm taking that warning. But that goes again to how how many multitudes Pac contain. There's the... Yeah, I mean, I guess that's also a Malcolm, a part of Malcolm too, I guess. That's that's Pac as Malcolm by the as um Malcolm by the window with the with the AK just chilling or that's Malcolm's, you know, the ballot or the bullet Malcolm, you know. Um that's fully charged Malcolm is is Pac t- listening to Tyson and being like, "Oh, what? Haitian Jack? Pff, not worried about it." Like, well, you maybe might want to be a little worried about it. And then the last character is not Tinsley's creation. It is P. Diddy's creation, Diddy's creation, Puff. Puff creating himself into Puff and then continuing to Puff himself up. Puff being Puff. Puff believing that he was a genius. On page 156, he says to Biggie, I'm a visionary. You have to trust me. And just having this unwavering uh, confidence in himself that turned him into Diddy. And every interview in the book uh or not interview every story about diddy in the book meeting somebody it's hard not to imagine i never saw get him to the greek uh but i saw like the trailer you know and him behind the desk being all serious and then maybe i'll watch that tonight actually it's not a bad idea but anyway uh and then or or uh the obviously and here we go third reference the Chappelle show sketch where it's making the band which i never actually saw the real making the band i only saw the Chappelle show sketch but it's hard not to imagine like caricature Diddy as Diddy in these stories that Tinsley's relaying because all the stories that people tell about him make him sound fucking ridiculous and he's a ridiculous human. So this ridiculous person with this ridiculous belief in himself sounds ridiculous is basically what I'm getting at. And it's great. It's great. He's my probably my favorite character in the book. Uh, I thought it was going to be Biggie going in, but I just find myself any Diddy story <laughs> is the best one. The Rob Stone story for So they had to release a third single off of um, Ready to Die. I, whatever, they didn't have to, but they were going to. And it was going to maybe, Diddy wanted to do Machine Gun Funk, but they had already done Juicy and Big Papa. And then 
Rob Stone was like, hey, we should do like, uh, you know, not machine gun funk. That's a little bit hard for the for the image that we're trying to get out there, you know. Um, thugs will pick up Biggie's shit no matter what, you know, like that, that they're good, but you got to get the, you got to get the buy-in from everybody else. And so whatever, anyway, this, they end up releasing one more Chantry mix, but when he presents this idea to to Diddy, the story is just that Diddy's like cursing him out and going crazy. And then like, you know, Rob Stone manages to get the story across to the idea across to him in the midst of this like verbal barrage. And Diddy just kind of stops cold and is like, Oh shit, let me call you back. And then just the wheels start turning and he gets one more chance remix uh, going. But it's just interesting to hear him, you know, be this crazy person on these crazy tirades. And then like, that's his creativity. His creativity is not rapping or actually making songs. His creativity is like figuring out how to market things and then getting inspired by one person being like, hey, it should be this instead of that. And then him taking it and running with it. So it's just funny. Any Diddy story is funny. There was a great one in the other hip hop book I read. It wasn't, uh, wasn't um, the come up. Must have been the Nelson George one, Hip Hop America, where Diddy ends up like, well, he was going to be in fucking Raisin in the Sun on Broadway or he was or whatever. And it's like. That sounds horrible, like going to watch Diddy. But this is a person with the ultimate amount of confidence in themselves. So, you know, there you go. All right, that was chapters 8 through 15. My thoughts, my uh, takeaways, and some extrapolations on what was in the book. Um, That's it. Please like, subscribe to the podcast, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Pocket Casts, uh, Apple Podcasts, etc. Um, follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. They're all in the show notes. The TikTok has a video. Uh, the, the Instagram has a post. So um, go check those things out. And uh, follow them. If, follow me if you want to have fairly mundane um, book stuff pop up in your feed. Um, I will do like non-black books on uh, on Instagram and and TikTok. By the way, so only the podcast will be black books, and then and then uh, on Instagram and TikTok you might get some non-black books. Like I read. The Fortress by S.A. Jones last week, and that's that's on my Instagram. It, it was fucking great, so check that out. But yeah, okay, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, yeah, check all that out on social media. The music's by The Keep Running. Check him out. And we'll be back in two weeks with the final third of this book. At last time, I said I would maybe be back in a week, but you know, you know how it is. We're all working. Everybody's everybody's grinding. So uh, two weeks back with the end of this book. Until then, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading. And there's time enough at last. That's not fair. That's not fair at all. There was time now. There was, was all the time I needed. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs>